She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and I am pleased to introduce a new-to-this-podcast guest, Alex Lang, Reverend Alex Lang to some. Alex, thank you for coming on. How you doing? Good. How are things over there? Doing well here in Chicago. Enjoying the life until it gets super cold, which it will soon. <laughs> that it will. That is the inevitability. <laughs> now, you do have your own podcast, too. So I said new to this podcast, but you are you have your own podcast. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, so I do a podcast called Restore of faith. It's basically about how people are leaving the church for all kinds of different reasons. We try to kind of get into the reasons why people are abandoning the church. I think that those reasons are perfectly valid, to be perfectly honest with you. The, the idea behind them, though, is that we try to really delve into a lot of the problems the church has. They, we have a pretty bad history, Christianity. <laughs> and so we kind of need to own that, I think, if we're going to move forward. So this new season, which is about to come out in November, uh, is going to be about prejudice and discrimination, pretty much and how the church has contributed to that in huge ways. Ooh. I jumped the gun a little bit having you talk about your podcast. Can you tell us more about you for the listeners who don't know who you are? I am a pastor in the PCUSA Church, Presbyterian Church USA. Uh, I run a church here out in Arlington Heights. And yeah, I mean, that's what I do as my day job. And it's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough gig. I'm not going to lie. Running a church these days is not easy to do. So that's what I do for my day job. That's a common theme I hear from from all the folks I know running churches. So it's rough. <laughs> and uh, we, our listeners, longtime listeners on this podcast, well know the struggles of the church because it's a it's a common recurring theme with many of the stories of the broads that we tell here. So before I go any further, if you're listening for the first time, I want to give just a little bit of background. Right now, we are in the middle of a series. They called them crazy. And each week, we're looking into the life and legacy of a woman whom society at some point called crazy. Were they certifiably insane by today's standards? Or were there other reasons that they were called that in their lifetimes? That's like the big question that I and we on this podcast right now are really interested in exploring. We split this super rich subject matter into a couple mini series. We started with the prolific broads, and then we moved it to the next mini series where we are right now, which is the visionary broads. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Hildegard von Bingen, who was both prolific and a visionary. She was very talented. Then we talked about Catherine of Siena and her mystical marriage to Jesus. And then last week, we took a look at St. Teresa of Avila and her interior castle. And now today, we are going to wrap up the visionaries with a broad who, while she was canonized by the Pope, unlike the other visionaries we talked about, she actually was not a nun, but she is probably the most famous of all of the visionaries we've talked about. Alex, who are we talking about today? We're talking about Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc. Joan d'Arc. Or Jean de Pucelle. She had several, several different names. Hopefully, Alex, you're better at pronouncing French names than I am. I'm not, I'm not very good. Oh, God, I'm awful. Before we get into our research, Alex, so Joan, I just said, is not as obscure as a lot of the broads we've talked about on this podcast. There's been a lot of portrayals of her throughout history. You know, Shakespeare wrote about her. And then, of course, in more modern times, there's been a number of movies and miniseries. 
And like, so before you started this research, I'm, I'm always curious to ask what, what was it you knew about Joan before we kind of dug into the details with the research? Like, or what was your gen- general impression of her as a broad? Actually, I knew very little about her. I the the only thing I really knew about her was that people thought that she was on Noah's Ark most of the time. Like that was literally the thing that people tend to confuse. Like if you were to ask little kids like who is Joan of Arc, they will say she was on Noah's Ark. Like that, oh my gosh. that those two things get <laughs> conflated with each other. Like people other than little kids too though, like adults Oh, absolutely absolutely adults. <laughs> like have no clue. No clue. Oh I mean, I had I had a little sense of kind of where she was in history and some of the things that she had done. But to be honest with you, I hadn't spent a lot of time kind of delving into her, partly because she is so popular. And it's kind of in like to me, I'm like, oh, well, you know, everybody knows everything about her. I like going into the more obscure figures. So but this was but for me, this was really interesting because I'd never done anything like this around her before to really get her story down. Yeah, her story is really interesting. And the only thing I knew about her well, I'll say I knew more than you did because I like glommed onto her when I was a lot younger because she's this strong warrior woman and I'm like really attracted to those stories. Those are like, those are the ones that really get me excited. So I knew that she was a poor young French woman, maybe even a shepherd's daughter and that she had a vision that would lead France to war and defeat their enemies. And that's like what I knew about her. A side note for our regular listeners or people who've been listening to this series, you might recall one of the very first people who wrote about Joan was one of these previous broads we talked about, Christine de Pizan. Joan came into the public view towards the end of Christine's lifetime. Alex, you weren't with us for Christine's episode, but uh, Christine was the basically the first published woman in recorded oh, wow. history, really. Um, she she wrote in France. She was, I think she was Italian, but she um, had moved to France. She was, a Fran- she was a Francophile. She was French for all intents and purposes. And she wrote quite a bit. She was very prolific. And then t- the last thing that she wrote before she died was a poem about Joan of Arc. It is really odd. You can look it up. You can Google it and read it. I'll probably post a little piece of it up on the website for y'all like I always do. But the poem that Christine wrote about her is filled with joy and promise and it much refers to kind of this dark period before that and how Joan came and kind of brought the light and obviously Christine was extremely moved by Joan I want to just take the second to like read a couple of the stanzas of this poem because I think it really kind of sets us up for what we're about to dive into yeah go for it so from Christine's poem when we take your person into account You, who are a young maiden to whom God gives the strength and power to be the champion, who casts the rebels down and feeds France with the sweet, nourishing milk of peace, here indeed is something quite extraordinary. But as for us, we never heard tell of such an extraordinary marvel, for the prowess of Ale, the great men of the past, cannot be compared to this woman whose concern it is to cast out our enemies. This is God's doing. It is he who guides her and who has given her a heart greater than that of any man, end quote. It's actually a very long poem. That's like a very small snippet. But we really just get a sense, if even if you, if that's all you read about her, we get a sense that Joan kind of awoke a sleeping France and changed everything for them. Yeah, she's amazing lady, no <laughs> doubt about it. Like amazing broad, as we say, as you say on the amazing show. Amazing girl. Yeah. She's a girl. Yeah, she's, she didn't live very long. <laughs> she didn't. We, we've had broads who lived shorter that we've talked about on this podcast, but she is definitely amongst the youngest. So let's go back to the very beginning, right? Yeah. She is born around, they didn't say exactly, but they say around 1412 in Domremy, 
Is that how you say it? Don Remy? Yeah, yeah. That's Friends. so yeah. So yeah, I think I think you said Don Remy. But yeah, I think the important thing is that it's in the context of the Hundred Years War that's going on between England and France. And all you really yes. need to know about that is that there's a ton of territorial disputes. Almost all of it takes place in France. And the reason why is because the English royalty and the French royalty have intermarried with each other. And so now they're kind of going after each other for the throne. And of course, everybody wants ascendancy. So what ends up happening, of course, when they come over and they start fighting on French soil, it decimates their economy. And these yeah. little French villages, like where she grew up, were just yeah. like, they just couldn't, they couldn't survive. They What little economy they had just kind of plummeted and was taken out. Yeah. And so she's kind of born really in the middle of all of this and some of the worst things that happen. And I don't know if, I think this is just kind of a fascinating thing that you know she ha she has her first vision when she's like 12 13 yeah 12 yeah. 13 and it happens kind of in conjunction with a raid that occurs on her town where a lot of cattle get taken and nobody really knows like who did it but the assumption was the english did it <laughs> and so and so it becomes this whole thing where it's like now it like all the villagers like come up as a result of that and they're like we're gonna fight back like we're not taking it anymore yeah and i will say i will add to so that in this time period from what i understand in my research that france also was was like split in half almost in a civil war because Charles the sixth he had these bouts of madness he like was either bedridden or they locked him away because he was like a danger to himself but he basically kind of couldn't rule and his brother the Duke of Orléans and then his cousin the Duke of Burgundy were like fighting over the rule of France so not only was it England versus France it was France versus itself and Domremy is like right in the middle. It's like in this no man's land between Burgundy's land and Orleans' land. So things are really messed up in this region, and and it goes back and forth. And um, yeah, I think all the most of the sources I saw said it was the English that stole the sheep. But but um, at this time, I believe if I remember correctly, um, it, from the research, it was Henry the Fifth. And he was supporting Burgundy. So he was like, he like used this opportunity of the French division to side with Burgundy. And so he was totally taking advantage of it. Yeah. And so, well, she has this vision at this time, which is just interesting because, you know, the vision that she has is of all of her visions kind of surround people who like saints that are associated with the area. Like, I think today we don't think of it this way, but like back then in the same way that gods were associated with certain geographical areas, saints, of course, would kind of be associated with areas. So in her area, there were like three main saints, St. Michael, which is, this is where she, her first one is around St. Michael, which if you look at the Bible, there's only actually one reference to Michael in the Bible, and it's in Revelation. You don't actually see anything about Michael anywhere else. It's very extra biblical. Yeah. Well, and 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 to be clear, so Joan is coming from a family. They weren't the poorest of the poor. They were called peasants, but they were kind of like the better off of all of most peasants. And her dad also had like a side gig collecting taxes. And like he was like in the local, you know, militiamen army helping protect the land. And they weren't like so well off that Joan went to proper school. She was at home. She was helping on the farm. She was doing the chores. She was sewing with her mom. And, and um, her mom was also the one who provided her, quote, religious education, which it seems to me is probably just the retelling of all these saints, right? It's like, these are the saints and these are the stories of the Bible. Like, it's not an actual sort of like a, a convent oh. or a nunnery where they would do some like 
true religious scholar. It was it was kind of like mom and dad telling all these religious stories, right? Yeah, I mean, at that time, you also have to realize like that it's 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 not like even the even the priests at that time. Like if you went to a church, they didn't even know how to read the Bible. It was very uncommon for people to actually know what was in the Bible. And you're a hundred percent correct that it was stories. It's oral traditions that are kind of just handed from one to another. And saints were a big part of that. You're you're a hundred percent correct to talk about it in that way because she would have inherited these stories, and that that would have influenced her way of thinking about everything. Is is mm-hmm. hearing these stories? But yes, I mean, and I think that that's what a lot of people. People don't realize is how how little people actually knew about the Bible because again we ha- we're not quite at the printing press yet right where it starts right. to get spread around and even the priests themselves their big thing was just to to do the traditions like you were going to do the confession the Eucharist and all of those different things they weren't even all that well versed in the Bible that really wasn't a thing at this point in time yeah. so so anyways she gets really inculcated into that kind of thinking about these these various important figures and. And she has this vision of St. Michael, which I wanted to ask you about. Like somebody who has a vision at 13, she's in this kind of area. Obviously, all of this war is going on. And there's a prophecy at the time about there's going to be a virgin who's going to come and who's going to save France. What do you think is happening in her mind? I'm interested to know your thoughts on that. Gosh, you know, it's so interesting because I don't I would have answered this differently a few weeks ago before we had done these other broads. They had like these religious ecstasies where they really thought Jesus was coming to them. But then they also like had there's evidence like the scholars say that they had potentially like epilepsy and seizures that they were having what could have been explained as physical events and neurological events happening to them. But it doesn't seem like in the research that I found that her visions were accompanied by anything like that. Like they don't say that she like falls prone and that she levitates. Like we had, you know, uh, t- uh, Teresa used to like levitate during her visions. And none of, I didn't see any of that in the research that I found about Joan's visions. It just said that these saints would come to her and speak to her and tell her what to do. No, yeah, absolutely. Well, it just it's interesting because in one of my episodes that I'm doing for this new season, one of the things that that we end up talking about is how the church really discriminates against people with mental illness. And one mm. of the people who I interview, like one of the the main kind of human interest story is a woman who had severe bipolar and she would go into psychotic episodes and she talks about how she would hear angels talking mm. to her and telling her what to do with her life and kind of how she was supposed to live her life. And she actually wrote a book in the midst of her psychosis. And so you can see like she literally wrote it down. And so she talks about these angels who are talking to her, telling her what to do. And I was like, did you see them? Like, did they like, and she's like, my mind only got so far as to see outlines of angels, but I never saw them. I heard. And so like mental illness is so fascinating because it can cause, you know, one of the people we interview is we, I asked like, why do schizophrenics, for instance, hear voices? Well, it's because of high levels of dopamine in the brain. And that's what causes oh. hallucinations, which is why like, if you do drugs that produce lots of like releases, lots of dopamine, you're likely going to have hallucinatory events and different things like that, that accompany it. All this to say bipolar, you have manic episode, you can have a lot of dopamine release. And I'm not trying to say that she has bipolar. I'm not saying she has schizophrenia. What I am saying, though, is that it's very interesting that I just had these interviews and it does align with kind of some of the things that is happening to her. They seem very similar. They do. But as I, you know, as I read about, like, at least the origin of the visions, it totally, they totally seem like, 
for lack of a better term, it's like a daydream about all these tales that she's been hearing from her mom. Absolutely. Oh, my, the archangel came to see me and St. Catherine. So, and Catherine and Margaret were the other saints, I think, that she saw very heavily. And they were known and very famous for being martyrs. They were Christian mm-hmm. martyrs. And so here she's been hearing all these tales. I mean, I guess I say this as a, as who, like, I self-identify as like a very daydreamy kid. Like I was always like, oh, here's this fantasy situation where I could be the hero and I could be the, or I could be saved or I could be blah, blah, blah. Like I can like see a young 12 year old girl, like manifesting the stories in what she thinks. But then at the same time, I also think she was really smart. And so maybe is it possible also that she understood that visions were respected and that visions could be like a meal ticket, not a meal ticket, because she wasn't trying to get money. Right. Let's just let's just follow the train of mental illness for a second, because who knows where it ends up going in terms of let's let's say she was mentally ill. She may not have been, but let's say she was. What's fascinating about that? What, uh, that is that a lot of people who have mental illness, they integrate elements of their environment into their psychoses, their visions, mm. a lot of what you, I worked for two years at a, at a state facility with people who had severe schizophrenia. And I can tell you that I would become integrated into their psychoses. Like oh, I would become part of it because they would say, oh, God sent you to me because you are going to take a message out of this hospital to the people who are beyond us. And so it's yeah. very it's very easy for like, I think it, if you don't have a lot of experience with mental illness or you haven't really been around it, it's hard to kind of understand how easily things in your environment can get integrated into it. Now, again, I mean, I, I like your idea. I would love to think that she, I think she's like, as we get more into her life, what's kind of fascinating is that you're right. She is super smart. She also is not, I don't, a lot of times people with mental illness don't have clarity on actual situations going on. And it's clear that she does to a degree, particularly once you get into her going into battle, like she was actually a decent military tactician, which I think for some people who are severely mentally ill would not be possible. So I would say she's definitely not in that category. But it's worth also noting, because I don't think we said this yet, that St. Michael, the archangel, uh, he was the the patron saint of like her neighborhood, but he also was known as the kind of the defender of France. And in the and in the Bible, at least according to that time period, he was the commander of heaven's armies who were leading the war against Satan. He is like her kind of her primary vision. And, you know, I don't want to jump the gun too much on the rest of the story here, but like what she ends up doing is going to war with France to unify France and kick out the English, right? And so she's yeah. got this, like, this this saint is the one who's helping tell her what to do and where to go. So let's bring it back to the story a little bit here. She She's about, like, 12 or 13 when she gets her first visions. Um, and it, I think she has the visions for a couple of years before she actually takes action, from what I understand. Well, a couple of years later, she specifically has a vision that tells her that she must go and bring Charles VII to Rhymes. Rhymes? I think it's, is that how you say it? Rhymes? Yeah, Rhymes. Rhymes, yeah. Rhymes? R-H-E-I-M-S is how you spell it. To be crowned king. So Charles, uh, this is Charles VII at this point, he's the the Dauphin, but mm-hmm. they're, um, so he's kind of the inheritor to the French 
throne. But in this treaty that was signed in 1420, it disinherited him from being the, the crown prince. And it gave the regency to Henry V, the English king. And so Henry's ruling England and France. But then in 1422, Henry V and Charles VI, the crazy Charles, they both die. And so then like whatever potential quote peace was happening was of course completely thrown out the window. And Charles of Valois, who will become Charles VII, he technically would have been the crown prince, but he was never coronated when his dad dies. So Joan starts to have these visions. And then like a year or two after she has her first vision, she has this specific vision that says, you need to take Charles VII to Reims to be coronated. And she's like, okay, I guess I got to do it. But as you can imagine, it wasn't as simple as that. Right. <laughs> no. Well, it took her a couple of times even to get to him. And I love, you know, did, did you see that little uh, the part about how like when she's like trying to go to see him, she starts wear that's when she starts wearing men's clothing. You know, the sources were a little varied on when exactly that started, but certainly so she start she travels to like the closest Orleans supporting fort. Because, you know, mm-hmm. she's kind of in this no man's land between Burgundy and Orléans. And so she travels to the closest fort. And the guy in charge there, she, she goes to him and she's like, listen, you really got to take me to Charles. I have some really important information and I'm going to help us win this war. <laughs> this guy's <laughs> like, um, hey, little girl. <laughs> hey, little, you know what? She's 14 or 15 at this point. He's like, um, no. And so she travels back home. And at some point in this period, she starts to don men's clothes because also it was just safer. Like as a young girl, traveling in like war times without much protection she like it was dangerous af as as we'll say on the podcast here (laughs) um and at some point she started putting on men's clothes because it's just it's safer to be a boy than it is to be a girl as you know with most most times in history um but she goes back twice so and it's only on the third time where this guy's like she's obviously like really determined i guess we ought to try to get her well, things had gotten really, really bad. So things were like the, the situation had deteriorated. And I think at that point, he's like, whatever. Like, it, it can't get much worse. Like, let's get this girl. She keeps saying that she has something to say because the situation had deteriorated to the point where, where essentially it was, it was like, it was like, what could it hurt at this point? Yeah. Because she has this, she has this message that she keeps saying that she needs to get to him from. Yeah. Well, and people, and at this point, it's been like I, between five and seven years since Charles VI died. So it's, and like, everyone is like really depressed and including the Dauphin himself. And and everyone felt like they didn't have hope and they didn't know what the future was going to hold. And like, they were like, it sounds like based on the history books, they were like kind of ready to almost give up. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a depressed period for sure. And then she, she gets to him and I just, I love like when she gets there and she kind of tells him like the whole thing of what she's planning on doing and what needs to happen, how he wants to test her. He, he like gives her a theological test and a virginity test, which I think is kind of crazy because they want to make sure that she is, cause he knows the, he knows the prophecy also that there's supposed to be this virgin who comes and helps. She's claiming she's the one who's going to fulfill that. And so he's like, well, let's make sure she's actually a virgin and she's not lying. So he sends her on down to his mother-in-law. That was not in my research. That's interesting. The research I saw said that he also sent him to like his religious leaders to, to kind of like, check her out and be like is she for real are these visions for real because the opposite of real visions was heresy right and heresy was was not heresy was usually death 
but you know sometimes sometimes you could get away with not being killed but he he wouldn't want to put his power his strength and support behind somebody who was considered a heretic right first of all charles hides himself amongst his courtiers but joan like recognizes who he is and she like pulls him out from the crowd and she's like we got to go to bat go to battle uh and so he he like sends her to be checked out by his religious authorities um, and apparently she was taken there for three weeks and she was questioned and other theologians were like, we aren't really sure. She doesn't seem like a heretic, but also our troops really need this right now. Because at this point she actually had, so at the point when she actually gets through to Charles, she actually has kind of a local following and she has some like, so by the time she had gone back and forth at the lower level, like at that other fort, some of the local guys started to hear her stories and were like, we believe you and we support you. And they would like start to accompany her on these trips back and forth. So she kind of had gotten this like little local group of people that were really into her story and really kind of believed her before even these kind of authority figures started to listen to her. And that's actually maybe even part of why the authorities even started to listen to her. So one of the sources says she predicted a particular victory. And when it came true, Charles commands them to bring Joan to her. And this particular article said she was able to convince him because she told him a specific prayer that he had made on November 1st. So before her arrival. And she answered his prayer by assuring him that he was indeed the legitimate claimant to the throne. And and so it like it like aligned with his own. She like told him exactly what he wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah. Guess what? You get to be the leader. And he's like, I do. Of course, he's gonna want that. <laughs> but she passes this initial test, and then he sends her to his his church branch, and they kind of vet her for three weeks, and they finally are like, let's listen to her. Let's do this. And they they send her out. Yeah. I mean, they send her out initially just kind of as a kind of like a rally the troops, kind of like a cheerleader almost. She did really rally the troops in terms of like she comes in, but then she starts going in the front, like the front lines. Like she goes, she goes up with like the front lines of these assaults. I think that was like yeah. really remarkable. I don't think they were expecting her to do that at all. Yeah. And apparently, so in 1429 is when like her and the army lift the siege of Orléans, which was like one of the first and like one of the biggest victories that France had had in the entire Hundred Years War. And then they go through all these major campaigns and they have all these victories. So like almost right away, like, like I, you know, whether or not it was just kind of the morale from her being there or whether it was her being there and kind of leading the troops. I don't really have, did you have a sense of that as you kind of read the progression of it? Yeah. Well, I think what ends up happening, I mean, if you, she, she ends up getting shot like literally in between the neck and the shoulder. And while she's like on the front lines with some of these guys, what's interesting is that she's taken out and she comes back almost immediately and she's yeah. right with them again. And I think that what ends up happening is that she's so, I, I like, she's so super aggressive in a way that really, like, if you look at military strategy at that time, it did, it was like, it was kind of not the way that you would do things. You wouldn't go like headlong in. And you see this in battle after battle after battle with her. Because initially they didn't listen to anything she said, but she did actually, they did actually take some advice from her in terms of like positions of attack, where they should assault and like where they should place some artillery. But what ends up happening is like, she keeps pressing. She's like, no, we have to do this. We have to do that. Like, whereas a lot of times what would happen is you would do a battle and then you would step back. 
right? And that was common because you obviously you want to rest and you want to have the opportunity to make sure that your men are okay. She would say, no, like, let's just keep going. And I think they were willing to do that because I mean, here she is, she got shot in like one of the worst places and she survived it. And she's like, let's go. And so it didn't give them an opportunity, didn't give the other side an opportunity to regroup. And I think yeah. that's what ends up happening again and again with her. She's so aggressive with it. And they're like, okay, let's do it. Even when a lot of the people who were in charge didn't like the idea, she would convince them to do otherwise. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't even just her, like it was her and her visions, right? She's she's like, listen, the archangel said we gotta do this right now. And people would be like, how can we argue with the saints, man? Like <laughs> we we got you know, maybe some of the military commanders, you know, maybe not everybody believed her, but certainly the people that really kind of bought into the fact that she was getting these orders from the divine were like, well, we better just do it. So soldiers who might otherwise be like full of doubt of running into these dangerous situations. They're like, well, if this is what God wants, then we, we got to get France back. <laughs> so they just like. No, absolutely. Well, and they also, she, I mean, she she gave them a different reason for fighting, right? I mean, you think about why do people fight in this day and time? You know, the concept of, it's, it's like today when we think of like nationalism and the reason why people will fight a war, it's so different mm. from back then where you would be conscripted. A lot of times it was like you, you have this, this nobleman who then owns land and you're, you're scheduled to fight because you're on that guy's land and he can call you into fighting whenever he wants. So like your desire to fight for France may not be that high, right? But this guy's telling you to go and do it. And she comes in and now they're fighting for God because they really believe mm. that now like this is this is God telling them you're going to do this and there's like a salvation at hand. Like we're not just doing this for this guy who's like forcing me to fight. We're doing it for a bigger cause, a bigger reason and God's behind us and victory after victory showed them prove to them that there's truth to this, right? Because she's going into this and they're like, oh my God, this is happening. And the English are like, we're getting defeated. Like they literally would say, we're getting defeated by a peasant girl. And to them, that proved <laughs> yeah. to them that they were being defeated by the devil. That's what they saw her as, is she was that her visions were from the devil, which come into play later during her trial. But oh, yeah. um, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, she goes through all these majors. So they lift the siege of Orléans. They lead the the Loire campaign, and they actually do. They bring Charles to Reims for his coronation, and they coronate him there. And they like they literally succeed her initial vision. That's where things go downhill after that. <laughs> things don't go really well after that. Did we miss anything in between? I didn't have a lot of details about each one of those battles because I also think they're kind of confusing. But <laughs> No, no. I mean, the truth is, is that like once, once he finally gets coronated, he's trying to figure out truthfully diplomatic solutions to the problems that are around. Like now he doesn't want to fight anymore. And she's still on the aggressive, like, come on, like we need to consolidate what, mm -hmm. you, what we've just done. Like, okay, like we got you coronated. You're king now, so let's go out and get this done. He did not want to do that. Mm -hmm. This is ultimately what leads to her downfall is that he's not backing her anymore. Like she loses kind of favor with the court, which is kind of crazy to think about. It shows you like this this girl, I mean, at this time she's 19 years old and she yeah. almost single-handedly allows for this guy who had very little political leverage to do anything. Now he's back in mm. power. You would think he would be bowing at her feet, but it shows you how the nobility at that time really understood the world. Like to them, he's in power. You're just a peasant. Like I, I'm done with you. You, you like you kind of yeah. served a purpose. And he, and in some ways, I wouldn't say entirely, but he does, in a sense, cast her aside, which is which is really sad. You know how. Well, 
Well, you know, as we know from, like, I think some of the other history we've talked about in this podcast is, like, once somebody was coronated, it was like their channel into the divine becomes kind of reality. So the so the king himself is, is like, a divine figure, especially in the Catholic Church. His, his divinity then superseded hers. Right. And he right. didn't. And also, literally, he didn't, quote, need her anymore because she had yeah. helped him win and now he had won, right? <laughs> And she she ends up like she does. She tries to, more campaigns, and he kind of doesn't support her. And then she's captured by the Burgundians, by the Burgundy people. And she is. I ha- one of my sources said that she was sold. Then the guy who captures her like sells her to the English. Oh, I didn't see that. Like I know she got handed over to a no, uh, to a noble who then wanted to make sure that but she kept like escaping from him. <laughs> that was the problem. Like she kept like she was like really good at getting out. <laughs> she she escaped and at one point she like jumped out of a tower and like into the moat, but she's but she was recaptured, you know, and and they use that against her later actually in her trials. So she's she's held as a prisoner for a long time, I think at least like 4 months um in the city of Rouen. Whether or not the English actually believed she was from the devil, she was a real problem for them because she was like this symbol of French power and unity, and they needed yeah. to get rid of her. <laughs> and <laughs> conveniently, she had visions from God, from the saints, and that was like ripe for them to be able to use against her in a trial of heresy and so they they are like questioning her about these visions and they're and they're like checking things and they go back they keep going back to her and and essentially they kind of ask her to renounce her visions and say that her visions weren't divine no absolutely that was how they were able essentially to convict her and show and if you want to get into that i think it's kind of an interesting it's interesting the way that they they go about doing this at this time because you know the church has so much power but it's really you know it's like what's kind of fascinating is it's not like protestants versus catholics or anything like it's catholic it's like it's basically the same church trying to say that like your vision is 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 wrong and heretical versus another faction of the same church saying well, no, 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 it's it's right. And so it's everybody, it's it's just the idea that the church at this point is a political entity. That It's entirely, it's the papal yeah. state, right? And they all are kind of run by the Pope or they speak, they answer to the Pope. But we see this division in other countries too. Like 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 last week with Teresa, we saw the same division of between these like more liberal Catholics versus these more conservative kind of Benedictine Catholics. And like, it's really interesting all these divisions that end up kind of like being the groundwork for the creation of the Protestant church. Right. Right. But yeah, they question her and she refuses. Like she, she is not an idiot as we've established thus far. She knows that she could just probably say something and get out of this. She could renounce it. She could maybe get away with like living life in prison or being exiled somewhere or something. And she refuses. She's like, no, these were visions from God and from the saints. These were all divinely inspired. And that's kind of ends up becoming, you know, the the nail in her coffin. And actually, can I throw in something on that? Because I think this is really fascinating. And this this was something that struck me as somebody who has had to take examinations around theology. They pose a question to her at one point, uh, but but it was the idea was to trap her, right? Like they want to trap her into having to give an answer one way or another, right? And so they were asking her, like, are you in God's grace, right? So that was the question. Mm. Are you in God's grace? The idea was that if she answered yes... Clearly, if you think you're in God's grace, which you can never in that in in the sense of the Catholic Church, you can never know that. 
right? You can never truly know that you're in God's grace. So if you say yes, because they wanted to say, well, yes, God has, you know, God has given me grace and all of this, then you can just say, oh, you're a heretic that way, right? <laughs> if she's, if she says, no, I'm not in God's grace, well, then clearly everything she's been doing to get the, the you know, to get the king on the throne, <laughs> like that would say that she's, she's actually not operating. But the way she answers is so kind of uh, interesting. She says that she hoped that God would put her in God's grace and she hoped that she would remain in God's grace. Basically, like she gives like an answer that's not quite an answer. She's just like, I well, I kind of I hope I'm in. Like, I hope so. And and it was interesting because she's, you know, you have to just put it in context. She's 19 years old. She doesn't have a theological education. She doesn't have a formal education at all. She can't read and write. And yet she comes up with like what is what is like the perfect answer for this. And in fact, this answer, like they were so taken aback by this. And it, and it caused this ripple effect where when you look at later, when they go back and they look at the trial transcripts and all of this, this is a big reason why ultimately she is exonerated. Not just because it was clear that they had come up with the decision beforehand that they were going to actually just execute her no matter what like that was kind of a foregone conclusion but this was these these kind of interesting things where it was like i i've taken theology classes i wouldn't have been able to come up with that answer like i don't think i would have thought to do that but yet here she is 19 years old and she knows yeah. in this spirit and she's very measured and everybody was very impressed with her answers like she was really good she knew how to do it in such a way and again i think this comes back later to help her kind of when she actually is eventually she does become a saint she does well and this whole time she's on trial because she's so she's held prisoner for months and she's questioned she's interrogated for months and maybe like the the literal trial maybe was a little bit shorter but you know leading up to that she had been repeatedly questioned repeatedly i think tortured is kind of the implication I, and that's an interesting question because in this yes they they actually have a vote on whether or not to torture her because they're trying to do it and they actually voted down now whether that actually means she wasn't tortured you don't know for sure but they did they did they were like maybe we should just get her to to confess this way it's just going to make things easier because the case was falling apart like people were resigning from the actual like some oh. of the the jurors like they were leaving because they were like this isn't like you're saying that she's this person who's this horrible like and sh everything she answers to and so they're like well maybe we should just torture her and then she'll say the thing we want her to say <laughs> they have like a record of those conversations <laughs> yeah like this is why she is actually one of the most written about people is because of all the documentation around her trial like mm. that's why people can't continually come back to her and it's 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 these things that uh that are just kind of fascinating which i, wow. I love so so i don't know if she was well, I don't know either. I just can assume she wasn't being treated like a first class noble. I, I can I, I don't imagine she was getting like steak dinners and in the prison. <laughs> well, she <laughs> was know? supposed to be with she was supposed to be with a woman. She was supposed to be held like and, and guarded by women. And they put her she she was guarded in a male prison. And mm. that's and so she had actually gone back to wearing she was wearing a dress at one point. They made and then her. She, yeah, they, they made, made her, do her wear it. a and, dress. Yeah, and then she wore men's clothes until the end of her life because she's and she, her thing was she's like, Well, if you're gonna put me in a male prison why shouldn't i wear men's yeah. clothing but that also was a, a sticking point for them like that they used against her in the heresy trial too was like well you're wearing men's clothes and that is not it was not okay yeah i guess that was against the law do you know anything about that i don't know about that or what that i don't is. know anything specific about like what the laws were but i do know that that was a specific point that counted heavily against her in these trials you know obviously they were searching for anything and that was like one of the big things that stuck is that even mm. though they were trying to force her to wear a dress she put the men's clothing back on there's something to be said too about how it's harder to abuse somebody in 
her male's clothing was like the clothing of a knight, I think, at that point, because she'd, she'd been t- to battle. It's a little bit harder to, like, take sexual advantage of somebody in armor, right, than it is to take someone in, like, a sackcloth gown. Gown. It's not a sackcloth gown. <laughs> that only thing exists. So it definitely was a sticking point. Um, and this whole time, I sh- it's worth reminding us, King Charles VII is silent this whole time. He, like, lets all this happen. And he knows the trial's happening. He knows that she's in prison. She's, you know, she's there for months, like we said. And he just kind of lets it happen. And she is. She's convicted. And she is... is um Burned at the stake. Yeah. Burned at the stake. So that's another another element of this is that after her execution, when you think about how she's killed, it creates this political problem for Charles. Here, she's the reason he's in power, and yet now she's been convicted of heresy. And so it's like that right there says you shouldn't be king any longer. And so he realizes, and I don't know why he didn't think of this while it was happening, um, but clearly he saw her as some kind of liability. Otherwise, he would have stepped up, I feel like, to do something for her. I mean, because he's, well, he is the one who exonerates her later, I believe. So I think, you know, my impression of the the research I did was that his leadership was so new and it was so tenuous and the unity of France and the balance of power between England and France was just like so tender that I, I like it seemed like it was a decision made to kind of protect what little stability that he had and that he and he feared that if he like stood up against the English in this trial and set his foot down that it was just going to kind of reignite everything where he had just gotten coronated and he actually, like actually he was King now. So later, so 20 years later is when she's exonerated. And I imagine 20 years later, his kingship, his kingdom looked a bit different than it did at this point at the beginning when it's so tender, when, when France is destroyed from all of these wars from so long I think he I think he was trying to keep the peace. Not that that's an okay reason to stand aside when somebody's getting, you know. I don't want to I don't want to condone that, but um it seems like that was the reason. So her convictions invalidated 20 years later in 1456. She's not canonized by the Pope though until 1920. So mm-hmm. there's a long period of time that happens between when she's exonerated and when the church officially starts to recognize her. Um and what was one interesting thing I saw, I don't know if you saw this, uh that uh, she was apparently canonized as a virgin, which is a, there's a, I don't understand the Catholic church very well and the designations between different types of can, like different types of saints, but a saint virgin is different than other saints of the church that were like martyr saints. So it's like the virgin saints and the martyr saints, and they didn't want to canonize her as a martyr saint. So they did it a virgin saint, which I don't understand anything about that. Do you know anything about that? Well, I mean, if we're, uh, from what I understand, you know, it, it relates very much to the, because of Mary, Virgin Mary, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with Jesus, that has a long history. And so, and so women who go down that road, right, you know, it depends on who you ask as to whether it's a higher form of canonization, but it's certainly considered to be a real honor to be canonized as a virgin saint. And mm. it's, it's something that it's a little bit different from like a saint who, when you look at other saints who might go out and who were martyred for the cause of Christianity or for the cause of the gospel. Yeah. They, they have a very high bar that they hold to that. But virgin saints, it's like, it's a different, it's kind of a different level because you've, you've taken on this, this element of chastity, which frankly in the church uh, is something that you see among clergy, right? Clergy right. will do this. And the so, nuns. so 
to remain chaste is a is considered to be a very high order. Not everybody does that, obviously. So you know, it's something that uh, that that they really revere within the church. Uh, itself. And so I think that's why, I think probably that's why they wanted her to be there. It's also interesting though, that you're bringing it up that she's canonized so much later. And this was a period, by the way, when you look at where she's canonized, there was a big period in the 1800s and early 1900s of kind of going back and taking figures from the past who hadn't really kind of gotten their due. And they were trying yeah. to kind of like catch up with it. And I, and I just, it's, it's interesting that she, that she was chosen because she, of course the most important thing about her in some ways, in my opinion, that she was a symbol of French freedom to so many people. And that, that she, she has been held up that way. Like when, when they're fighting revolutions, they, you know, she became kind of that symbol to them of what you have to do to get freedom and what you have to go through. When you look at France today, they're so divorced from Christianity, you know, compared to where they were, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, when she, when she was around. And so, so I just think it's so interesting that for a secular country such as France, a woman like her really still holds up through time. People in France today still revere her as somebody who is so important to their history, irrespective of the religious aspect of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and she's really different from the other women we've just talked about the last couple of weeks too, because they were also made doctors of the church because they affected the church theology and the development of the church. But Joan was, she was a political figure and and like a, and a warrior. And that was a really different position. It's interesting that she kind of <laughs> shares the status with both the warrior and these visionary nuns almost, even though she was not a, a member of the clergy. She did not, she was never a nun. She may have like taken a personal vow, but she didn't take a vow under the church. She just was this political figure and this and this warrior. And I find that really, that's like a really unique position that I, it seems like not very many people kind of straddled that line. Oh, not at all. I think, yeah, I think that that is what kind of makes her unique throughout history. You know, most people fall into one category or the other pretty firmly uh, in terms of, of where they are. And they certainly, you know, have canonized different uh, different warriors of the past, you know, different, you know, men in particular who fought in wars were, but as a woman, you're absolutely right. Like here she is, she is, a, she is a warrior woman and she stands out as being unique that she fought in battle and, and that, but yet her, her faith was so important to her. You know, even today you, you, you are correct as this is the last one in this series, you know, she, she, out of all of the women that you know throughout history that had religious significance, you said it in the beginning, and it's important to remember that, that she, her name carries so much weight to it, which by the way, I don't know if you, you saw that in your research, but Joan of Arc was really a name given to her after her death. That yeah, she, she wasn't was never, called that in her lifetime. I did see that. <laughs> she never called herself that, which I just think is so, that's just so the way people She are. called herself in her own letters. So she did. She couldn't read or write herself, but she would dictate letters, you know, in, in all these happenings. And, and it sounds like in, in my research, she would refer to herself a lot as La Pucelle, which is the maiden. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what she, that was kind of her token. That was her MO, the maiden, AKA virgin, <laughs> <laughs> young, young, young virgin women. But um, it's so interesting too, that that's like what she's known most for. And that that is not even, she wouldn't, rec- she wouldn't answer probably to that name if someone had called her that in her lifetime. I think that's pretty much all I have on her canonized in 1920, in 1922. It seems like the Catholic church did a lot of that catching up in the 1900s too, because these other these other broads we've talked about, these visionaries, were they were most of them were canonized and made doctors of the church in the 1970s. <laughs> so the church was doing a lot of a lot of catch up in that time. Well, period. actually, and and you might need to fact check this, but I'm pretty sure the whole kind of cult around Mary, the Virgin Mary, Jesus's mom, 
mm-hmm. developed in the late 1800s. I, I think it was like 1870s, something like that, if my, if my memory is correct on that. So like a lot of this kind of like the, like a lot of the beliefs and the things that we see around Virgin Mary becomes really important at that time. And so the idea of like, she's not super far after that. So you can kind of see that she's in this line of where, because different popes have different things that they want to emphasize. And, you know, clearly with her, she kind of fell into whatever was, you know, happening at the time that they wanted to kind of emphasize with her. (laughs) What do you mean the church had, the Pope had ulterior motives, Alex? Is that what you're... (laughs) I I can't imagine them having an agenda, right? (laughs) We love talking about agendas on this uh, podcast. Uh, <laughs> well, Alex, thank you so much for being here to talk about Joan. Is it? Is it? She's so fascinating to dig into. Oh yeah, just an amazing woman, amazing woman. And thank you for having me. Your podcast is remarkable. I love listening to it. You have just great. Uh, you have you have you you choose so many different amazing women to talk about on the podcast. Like I like I. The only thing I can even get that even gets close to it in some ways is like drunk history. I feel like to what you guys <laughs> yes. do, like like you guys are, and and I feel like drunk history. If it came back on, should be using you guys to like to get in yeah. for, for their to like choose people to do because you you really come up with some great folks to talk about. I mean, history is filled with these amazing women, and we just don't know their stories because they're just not the stories you know. That, that we're taught in history class, which is exactly the whole point of the podcast. <laughs> um, but they're out there and they, and the more, you know, I'm getting good at researching them too. I feel like at the very beginning, it seemed harder and like, where do you go to find these sources? But I think like the stories of these women are making a resurgence and, uh, and it's exciting to be able to highlight women who made such an impact. And Joan did made such an impact. Uh, I, I, I think it would, history would have gone in a very different direction had she not been there. She is definitely abroad. We should know. She's definitely abroad. We should know. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for being here, Alex. You've been a delight. To learn more about Joan of Arc, see some paintings of her and some of the poem by Christine Pisan, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about Alex. His bio, photos, links to his cool stuff is all there. Hey, are you following Broads You Should Know on social yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. If you're a fan of this podcast, I'm asking you, please help spread the word about us by sharing your favorite episode with friends and family. And better yet, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those things really help new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed learning about Joan of Arc, then you should check out some of our other previous broads, including, of course, Christine de Pizan, as well as our other controversial, sainted broads, Olga of Kiev and Mother Teresa. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>